This week, we speak with Hillel Salal from Checkpoint. In the new segment, Project Zero, adjust their disclosure policy. We ring in the new year with more insider threats, strategies for cert rotation, and more. Stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Make sure your team is prepared to fight off the latest cybersecurity threat. IT Pro TV is the resource to keep you and your IT team skills up to date. You can stream IT Pro TV courses live and on demand, so there's no need to send staff to off-site training. Team subscriptions include Pro Portal, so managers have full control over your team's training schedule. Go to itpro.tv ASW and use the code ASW30 to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off your monthly membership. Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 91, recorded January 13th, 2020. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with Matt Alderman. Good morning. Happy Monday, Mike. Happy Monday, Matt. Good to speak with you again. And guess what? We also have John Kinsella. It's his first appearance this year. Hey, John. Happy New Year. I finally got out of bed for the New Year. <laughs> That's good. Hopefully you're nice and well slept, so you, you're nice and refreshed for, for some good stuff to chat about for the rest of for the rest of the year, actually. Faux show. Sure. <laughs> Join us at InfoSec World 2020, March 30 through April 1st at the Disney Contemporary Resort. Security Weekly listeners save 15% off the InfoSec World main conference or World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com slash ISW2020 and click the register button to register with our discount code. Our next webcast is January 15th with Cecilia Marigny, uh, RSAC Program Director, Innovation and Scholars, where we will discuss the RSAC, RSAC Sandbox, RSAC Innovation Sandbox, their Launchpad, Security Scholar, and their How-To Seminar for Innovators and Entrepreneurs. Register for our upcoming webcast by visiting securityweekly.com. Select the webcast drop-down from the top menu bar and click Registration. Hillel Solal is passionate about security innovation and is currently driving product innovation and security as part of Checkpoint's CloudGuard Dome 9 portfolio. Having been recently acquired by Checkpoint, Hillel was the CTO and co-founder of Pratigo Labs, the leader in code-centric security for serverless. Hillel was also CTO in Cisco's IoT security group, where he worked on innovating, on innovating security solutions for new technology markets. Welcome to the show, Hillel. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's great to have you here. And one of the things that we wanted to uh, dive right into is we're talking about, um, you mentioned serverless and a lot of the work you've done with Pertigo. Um, but we also want to look at, since we're starting off the year, so the, some trends in DevSecOps and AppSec for 2020. So with that in mind, what, what what's some of the things that are exciting you or are you looking forward to this year? Well, I'm really excited about the shift that organizations are making to the cloud and, and in a really modern way, uh, what people tend to call cloud native now, uh, and what that means for organizations, what that means for security, what that means for DevOps, what that means for how we build software. I really think there, this is the year where we're going to see, see oh, sorry, I really think this is the year we're going to see a fundamental shift 
in how people build and deploy and operate software. And that's going to affect our on-prem deployments, but especially our cloud deployments. And for us uh, in, in Protego and now in, in, as part of uh, Checkpoint, we're really excited about what that means for security, what some of the new opportunities are in security, and how we have to approach that to make things work. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things um, from a Checkpoint perspective is a couple of years ago, I was sitting down with some of your biz dev guys before some of these acquisitions, by the way, hello. And, and I was asking them about what's Checkpoint strategy when it comes to application security, right? You've, you, you have the, the presence at the perimeter with the firewall. And at the time, there was this, this belief, I think, for a while that, you know, as long as you had access to the perimeter and the endpoint, you, you were okay. But we've seen this dramatic shift in the market into more cloud native, into serverless, into containerization. And I think Checkpoint woke up pretty quickly and said, whoa, wait a minute, this world is moving that direction. And, and you guys made a lot of strategic investments over the last year and a half in this space to really position you a lot differently than you were, say, two years ago. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think one of the interesting things to recognize is that when you move to securing the cloud, it's it's really not an extension immediately of what you do in the on-prem world. You know, a lot of the things you mentioned, that maybe especially the perimeter, those are paradigms that don't work so well in the cloud. And it was really necessary to adopt new new paradigms and new techniques. And I think one of the things that happened here in Checkpoint over the past couple of years has really been a shift in mindset about how we approach cloud, how important cloud is strategically, but then also how how do we approach cloud. I think you're seeing a shift away from let's take the things that we have from on from our on-prem world and see how we translate them to cloud into a recognition that cloud is different. The way people look at cloud, the way people operate software in the cloud is different. And therefore, the way that people will need to secure the cloud is different. The relationship with the cloud providers is different than the relationship you have when you do things on-prem with your own team. And so it's really necessary to embrace new models of security. And I think the things you're seeing with some of the acquisitions that happen, but but also some of the mindset shift that's happened inside the company, and I'm seeing it now, I'm, you know, I'm kind of new here, but I'm already seeing how there's really been a big shift inside as to how we think about the cloud, how we think about customers who use the cloud, how do we talk as salespeople to customers using the cloud, who are we talking to, what are we saying to them, what are the things that they're worried about, and then what is, what's the technology stack that's going to help us get there? And obviously some of that technology stack is gonna be based on or built upon or even using things that we've done for you know, 20 years in the on-prem and enterprise world, but a lot of them have to be reimagined or augmented with things like the acquisition of Dome 9 and now Protego and some of the other pieces that really help. So I'm going to ask yeah. a question there, and this this might sound snarky. That's not the intention, but I think it, it's sort of interesting. I think this is going to show interestingly how the market moves. Um, and, and that question is a little late to be getting on the cloud bandwagon, isn't it? I don't know. You think that cloud thing's going to catch on, really? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> my, my point being, it, it's, it's you know, there's some of us in our little bubble, which, you know, we, we we live in and out of this every single day, and we think everyone's doing it. But I suspect what you're going, not to put words in your mouth, but I suspect um, the uh, greater uh, sort of worldview, which Checkpoint is looking at, is a little bit different than that. Would that make, would you agree with that? Yeah, and, and I think for me, it's heightened because I've just made the transition from a very cutting edge, small, rapid startup to one of the world leaders in security, but also one of the world leaders in security by virtue of the fact that it's a relatively conservative company that moves cautiously, you know, makes decisions slowly and carefully. And I think there's a lot of value in that, particularly as an enterprise customer. Uh, you're not necessarily looking for somebody who's sort of, you know, you know, running head, you know, jumping head first into 
cloud, throwing everything at the wall and trying to see what sticks. Uh, as an enterprise customer, or particularly larger enterprise customers, you're looking for somebody to walk in and say, look, I figured this out. Here are the pieces you need. Those are the things you don't need. Let's not go crazy. Let's see if we, if we can get you going with as few suppliers as possible and as few integrations as possible. So uh, you're, you're right that it's, you know, the cloud's been around for a while and how are we sort of showing up now Checkpoint and some of the other, you know, larger giants in security and saying, okay, we've now figured it out. Here it is. But I think that's kind of the natural evolution of the way security works is, you know, there are smaller, faster movers early on that really define what the market is and what the market needs and help sort of figure out that technology stack. And then there are larger companies that say, look, we can do this, but we can do this and operate it and sell it in a way that's meaningful for larger enterprises. And I think that's what Checkpoint is doing. So, you know, would it have been better if maybe we'd made some moves earlier? Possibly, but I don't think it's too late for uh, a company like Checkpoint to move into this space. I think it's the right time for Checkpoint to be saying, look, we've figured out what cloud means and how you need to do cloud. We've figured out what's different in that world and how we need to talk differently and act differently and provide different technologies. And here's what we think cloud is. And I think you're going to see over the next year a lot of moves from us around cloud and containers and serverless and all these other pieces that I think are going to really paint a meaningful picture about what cloud security is. And I think well, that's I think fair, and I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you on on that positioning. So, but I think what's interesting with you guys coming in there now, it's sort of layer on top of that, at least from what I'm seeing is, is those companies which would be a little more conservative in their adopt, adoption, they're starting to look at serverless. Um, so that seems like, at least to me, that's moving a lot quicker than I expected. Would, would again, um, not, not to act like the lawyer, but would you agree with that? Or, or, or what are you guys seeing from just from your own neck of the woods? Well, I, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think I'd love to pull up my investor deck from two and a half years ago when we started to have a conversation. One of the things that I talked about when I spoke to investors, you know, two and a half years ago was serverless is a little bit different than containers was in the sense that we're already seeing, and this is two and a half years ago, certainly today, we're already seeing large enterprises making steps into this. We're seeing uh, financial institutions, we're seeing banks, you know, banks like Capital One uh, and HSBC and some others. We're seeing large enterprises like uh, Coca-Cola and you know, established startups like iRobot making really quick steps into this space. So I think, uh, yeah, I think people uh, were really hungry for a way to use the cloud that was more meaningful and useful than they've had till now. And I think serverless very rapidly became, I don't know about the way, but one of the ways that you can really go properly go cloud native as opposed to kind of lift and shift your, shift your virtual machines into the cloud. Uh, so I think we've seen a much more rapid adoption. I think that's what, that was, that's what attracted me to the space to begin with. This notion of serverless is going to be different. Cloud native is going to be different. Security will be different. There's an opportunity. And also it's not going to be five years before anybody that's got more than hundred people in their company starts using it. So absolutely. And I think today we're 2020 is really where we're seeing that, you know, play out where, you know, just, just about everybody who's anybody building software is doing it in the cloud and is doing some of it serverless. Yeah, Hillel, I, I have these conversations with uh, investors often about the different security vendors. And, and one of the things I try to educate them on, and you, you hit on points of this, and I think it's really important, is the move to the cloud is different today than it was five, 10 years ago. Five, 10 years ago, we were literally taking our servers in the data center and creating infrastructure service in the cloud. We're not doing that anymore. We're actually moving things into platform and serverless capabilities where we've abstracted away aspects of the network, of the endpoint, by adopting these way more mature service offerings from the cloud providers directly. And to your point, the way you secure them is very different. We're not going to throw an agent in a platform as a service and, and say, oh, I can secure that, right? It's very different train of thought and a different approach. And, and what I'm hearing is, 
you know, at least from a checkpoint perspective, who's traditionally played in the network and some of the endpoint space, you've recognized customers are, customers are moving to these environments and therefore the techniques need to change. Investors are still learning through this process. And I think it's good that everybody gets educated is how these, um, you know, how these applications, how these new services are really coming into the cloud because they're very different. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I think as you guys are diving into this, that, that theme that's emerging is very much that serverless is really where people and, and organizations are trying to find the patterns, as well as, Hillel, you were saying that the security is different. Um, I'm curious to dive into that a little bit because different doesn't necessarily mean better or worse for that matter. Um, so I'm curious, you know, as you see organizations try to figure out how should they be using serverless since that since they're not coming from a, a lift and shift, a quote unquote serverless that they might have had in their own data center. What are you seeing as either better uses for it or challenges they're running into or even for that matter, a more optimistic look? What are some of the benefits that they're getting out of serverless? Yeah, absolutely. So, so first of all, even if we put security aside for a second, I think. Serverless is very different than the way we operated in the cloud before. I think to some of the points made earlier, it's, it's really a different paradigm for how we use the cloud. Uh, one of the challenges that organizations have is once they've gone serverless and they've accepted the, the rapid velocity and feature deployment they can get from serverless, it's really difficult to dial that back. And so even if there are costs that they're paying in security or observability or monitoring or operations or anything else, it's difficult to you know take a step back and say, you know, actually, we don't want to do that. So people are really moving quickly into the space and then getting kind of I don't want to say stuck into it, but they're really uh, enjoying the benefits in a way that makes it hard to move away from it. From our perspective, when we talk about security, I think there are a couple of things that happen. I don't think, uh, no, and I think you said this really well, I don't think serverless is necessarily more or less secure than anything else. I, if anything, I would probably make the argument that serverless applications tend to be more secure than non-serverless applications. As a security startup, that wasn't always a great argument to make. You kind of sometimes want to scare your customers into buying software. But we, you know, we really fundamentally, fundamentally believed that you move to serverless, there are a lot of things that become healthier about how your application is structured. Having said that, uh, there are differences. And I'm going to put my software, where am I going to put my security agents, or where do I replace those things? What's your perimeter security? The perimeter is no longer a really good model. What's the replacement for that? So, Hillel, one of the themes that's been coming up in this discussion is that um, the, the cloud is, is, is different. And, and you mentioned also serverless being different. And that's, different doesn't necessarily mean better or worse. And serverless is also, I think, interesting because it's not like um, it, it's not like people or organizations can move from serverless that they were running in their data center to lift and shift it into the cloud. This is actually something that's new with its own new patterns. So what have you seen there in terms of security being different and either on the optimistic side as it's better um, or it's still challenges that organizations have to look out for? Sure. I think obviously the fundamental uh, difference when you move to the cloud is this sort of notion of the shared responsibility model. And the fact that uh, as you move into the cloud, the cloud provider, whether it's Amazon or Microsoft or Google or anybody else, uh, they've got a set of responsibilities and a set of tools they're going to provide and a set of things they're going to own in terms of security and operations and deployment. And then you've got a set of responsibilities that you have. And those are different than the things you had when, when you were living in the on-prem enterprise world. Uh, now, beyond that, when we talk about serverless, serverless and maybe the more broadly cloud-native, uh, the way I like to think, think of it is it's sort of adopting the cloud as an operating system. So if you take that paradigm, 
until now, we've been looking at the cloud as a way to source hardware. So we didn't want to buy machines and deal with operating machines. And so we use the cloud, and that's great. But now we're saying, actually, we want to look at the cloud as an operating system. We want to build software that runs on the cloud. And that's why, to your point, there's very little lift and shift in these worlds, uh, You know, whether it's uh, serverless and, and functions, or even in a lot of the sort of more, more modern uh, ways we're doing microservices and containers, we're seeing less and less lift and shift, less and less, let me take something I built for some other platform and get it running here. And more and more, let me look at this platform as an operating system, and let me think about how I build software for that, let me take advantage of the things that this platform can give me and not rewrite things that are already uh, written. And that's really the, the cloud native and serverless ethos is, you know, take things that are managed and then put your business logic in there to put them together. Uh, when it comes to security, that means a bunch of things. First of all, it means that a lot of the places we put security in the past, they don't necessarily work all that well for us. So if we're thinking about uh, you know, the perimeter as a place to put security, that becomes challenging in a cloud native and serverless world where data can flow in and out of applications in all sorts of different ways. And it's really difficult to sort of map out a really nice tight perimeter and say, okay, all the bad things are going to come through this front door. I'm going to put security here and I'm going to scan it and find it. Uh, now we've got this much more complex application getting triggers from all sorts of directions, interacting with lots and lots of third-party services. And every one of those potentially could be you know, a point of ingress for malicious data. And so we really need to think about differently about where we want to put our security and where we want to, uh, you know, set it up. But then also a lot of the places we used to use and leverage for security, you know, real estate don't work anymore. We don't necessarily own the operating system or the runtimes of these platforms. And so we can't necessarily install the agents and the SE Linuxes and things like that that we used to to get security. So in a lot of ways that requires us to sort of reimagine not the threats, because the threat landscape, for the most part, is, is very similar to what it was previously in the cloud. Uh, certainly, cloud threats are different than on-prem threats. But more than that, when we go to cloud native and serverless, we need to sort of reimagine, well, what kind of security do you want? Where am I going to put it so it's meaningful for me? How am I going to operate it? Uh, that's the challenging part. The upside for us is really when you embrace this model of code is business logic and managed resources and gluing applications together in this sort of, you know, way that serverless and cloud native does, a lot of things in security become easier. For example, answering questions about whether A and B should be talking becomes easier because A is something that you know and B is something that you know, and these things are labeled. If B is a database and A is a function, it's really clear to make a decision about whether a function should be talking to a database as opposed to kind of the old world where we had this pile of containers or VMs and we didn't really know what they were and it was difficult for security teams to make policy about that, uh, certainly at the speed that's required to protect the cloud. So in that sense, a lot of the things that we used to do manually can be done more in a more automated way. A lot of the things that we did very coarse-grained can be done very fine-grained. Uh, and one of the things that we focus on a lot in Protego, and I think it's really valuable now that we come into the domain ecosystem of Checkpoint, is the ability to drive towards least privilege. And that's really powerful in the cloud. If you can drive everything to least privilege, you can get a lot of security that it was hard to get in the past. And that's something that's more challenging to do in the non-cloud native, non-serverless world where you have these big monoliths and go figure out how to apply some sort of least privilege to a monolith. Yeah, that's got to be really um, challenging, though. So, Because I, I can imagine that's a great example just to say, here is a function that reads from the database, and here's a function that maybe needs to write to the database. And with serverless, you can start to say, cool, actually, rather than this particular service that talks to the database that's container to container or VM to VM, like you were saying, is this is actually the one serverless function and all it does is read. And this is the other function, all it does is write. So you can really do a lot of decomposition, but I'm going to guess that starts to get, once we start, start talking about anything more complex than read and write into a database, trying to track that fine grain access control becomes pretty difficult. Um, so w what are some ways that somebody might approach that though and be successful at it? Yeah, first of all, you're, you're spot on. Usually the conversation, it takes about 20 seconds usually for the cloud security architect to go from, oh, wow, I could set any of the 5,200 different API permissions for each of my functions, and I could apply those permissions to each 
particular individual resource. So I can say this function only needs to write to this particular table and only needs to read from that particular bucket. That's super powerful. And then it takes about 20 seconds for it to go. I mean, I have 170 functions in my account. <laughs> I have to make a decision for every one. And then they change two, three times a week. Forget it. I give up, right? And so you're right. You know, the, the, the carrot and, you know, and the stick come together here. Uh, what we've really focused on, and I think this is proving to be more and more valuable, and I think uh, others are, you know, are going to follow suit, is automating this process by leveraging all of the complex data that's available to us. So one of the things that people often don't notice is that as we've shifted to the cloud, as we've shifted to microservices and then serverless, and as we've shifted especially to configuration as code, some of the things that were sort of opaque are now available to us as, as data. So we can start looking at not just uh, you know, what machines are there, but hey, what does the code say those machines do? And what does the configuration say they're allowed to connect to? And where are they supposed to be running? And what are they meant to be interacting with? And all of that information can be automated into a process where we can say, hey, you're right. It's really challenging to figure out what's least privileged for every piece of the architecture as it shifts two, three times a day or a week. But if we can automate that process so 99.9% .9 of those decisions can be made automatically, and then we can allow our security people just to focus on those edge cases where we say, well, that's something special we want to think about that, uh, then we're going to be able to get to that value of least privilege without the you know, sort of mass suicide of security professionals. Yeah, I think yeah, that one of the sounds like a carrot in the cliff rather than a carrot <laughs> in the <a> stick. <laughs> but, but Hillel, you bring up a really interesting benefit of DevOps is because everything is code, the, the creation of the infrastructure it's running on all through YAML files and, and all the different configuration files, what we've done is we've documented it in a way that security's never seen it before. See, security didn't have access to how these applications were configured because it was this one big monolithic piece of code. But DevOps, by breaking this stuff up, embedding everything into this code, it actually gave security professionals an opportunity to get visibility into the application that we've never had before. And if we can truly look at those configuration files and really understand what's going on, we can actually do a lot better job of securing an application before it moves in production because we have that visibility. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I, I think for me, the, the, the revolution that Dome 9 and some of those other custom companies brought to the cloud space was exactly that, was this notion that, hey, guys, there's so much information available now in the way that you're deploying applications and in the fact that that stuff is now documented, as you said, in a meaningful machine-readable way, that we can now bridge the gap between security people and DevOps and Dev in a way that lets security people understand what's happening, build compliance rules, build a security posture, things like that. When we started Protego, one of the things we wrote in one of our first slides was, we're going to be Dome 9 for code, meaning we're going to be that world of, I want to read configuration, but we want to go a step further. We want to read code. Because the thing that security people were talking to us saying was, hey, I have no idea what this application does. And I'm not going to go do a code review, even if I could, for every piece of code a developer writes, every time he changes it you know, three or four times a day, I can't keep up with that. That's not my job. It's not my skill set. On the other hand, how do I make decisions about what I want to enable or not enable, or whether I want to trust a developer who I've handed those keys over to uh, if I don't know what this application does. And to us, one of the real key insights was, hey, but wait a minute, all of this code is there. It's part of the application, it's documented, it's part of the process. We can automate the process of understanding what this code wants to do and say, okay, if this code wants to connect to a database in this particular database and do a read on it, and we understand that was the developer's intent, that might be something we want to allow, or maybe it's something we don't want to allow. But if this code doesn't want to connect to a database, then why would we allow it to do that? Let's make sure it can't do that. Let's build a security profile that way. And so bridging that gap of saying, okay, yeah, configuration, that's step one. Code, that's step two. And in a world where you're like serverless, where all you have, all you own is data, configuration, and code, you don't own 
runtime or operating system or network, none of those things are meaningful to you. When you think about security, that's what you're thinking about. You're thinking about, okay, what's my configuration? Is it optimal? What does the code say I want to do? And how do I translate that into good decision-making? Where's my data? Is it secure? Those are your decisions. App user data. I've been saying it for almost five years now. No, over five years. App user data. That's what we control in a cloud-native world. That's all we got. Um, so let me try one on for you. Uh, when I was looking at your guys' website over the weekend, um, it, it was an interesting read because, you know, I think, uh, and I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what serverless security means to me. So I think this is an interest, interesting conversation for me and for our, our listeners. Um, my first thought was to go straight down zooming into thinking about uh, actual AppSec, right? So OWASP top 10 type things, more sort of focus around that. But the sense I got from your website is you guys sort of focus around three sort of areas. You know, we've, we've been talking today around, as you said, Dome 9 for, for uh, a function, I'll say. But you're also looking at vulnerability management as well as um, some of that uh, more AppSec-y type things. Do you feel one of those is more important or something needs to be covered that there's a um, better bang for the buck in, in one of those three over the others or any thoughts between, because it's interesting to think about it. It's not just one thing, right? It's that combination of the three. Yeah, yeah. So when we started, I really tried to um, build a model that said AppSec, traditional AppSec is not important uh, because in a world where everything is very fine grained and very nuanced and where we can understand the meaning of everything, we could build security posture that would simply make the bad things not happen. Um, and as we as we did that, and we made a lot of really great steps in that direction. And, and as you as you mentioned, a big part of what our product is able to do is understand proper configuration, understand right IAM roles automatically, do vulnerability management, things like that. Uh, but the thing we realized was, yeah, that's gonna that's great, and it's super valuable. And I and I made the argument, and I'll stand by it that doing posture correctly in a serverless application has far more bang to buck than it does in a traditional monolithic application because least privilege is really meaningful in serverless where functions do very little, right? And and your ability to drive to that least privilege is more powerful and more, more available automatically than it was in a world where applications are really complex and hard to track. So that's great. Uh, but what it comes down to, uh, you know, brass tacks to realize is there are still bad things that can happen to an application that we can't mitigate just by trying to put the right you know, doors and, and windows into the house. We actually have to have active defense as well. And so what ended up happening was we couldn't get away from the need to solve the the, the sort of OWASP top 10 runtime security problem. Uh, and so what we did was we turned around and said, okay, well, what does it mean to do that in a serverless world? And then there were two issues. One issue was it's, you know, where do you put your WAF? How do you scale it right? Uh, you know, where you, if, you have, if you want to do something like runtime, like RASP or something, where would you install that? You can't put agents into your Java runtime. You can't put things in the operating system. So how do we reimagine that for serverless you know, in a way it's stateless, ephemeral, and meaningful? But that, that, was, that was the challenge part. But then there was the opportunity part, which was, okay, when we, when we finally embraced the fact that we can't get away from AppSec, uh, we looked at AppSec for serverless. We said, wait a minute, uh, we can do AppSec for serverless in a way that we've been dreaming about doing it for containers and, and, and VMs for years. We've always been talking about whitelisting the right behaviors rather than blacklisting the bad, you know, the bad behaviors. And it's always been a struggle. You know, I mean, there's a million products out there saying, I'm going to do anomaly detection on your, you know, macro containers and figure out what, you know, if they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. But as we all know, it's really hard to turn that into something that blocks bad things because just the signal to noise ratio is terrible. Uh, but here, when we start talking about fine grained resources that usually do the same thing every time and where we can actually profile them before they run by understanding what they do and then build that together with runtime profiling, can't we build a model where zero configuration, I call it auto, auto segmentation, this notion of, kind of you know, high level application level micro segmentation, but automatically, because I can't possibly micro segment every behavior every piece of code is going to do manually. But if I can do that automatically and I can base it on information that's meaningful 
and it's going to give me very low false positive rates, then I can be in a world where I can tackle the AppSec problem as well alongside the posture. I can base both of those things on top of this understanding of what code does and what code needs to do. And I can solve those two problems in a way that's going to let me sleep at night without hiring a thousand people. That was our, you know, don't hire a thousand people. That was our tagline. <laughs> don't hire Unless a thousand people. It. Sounds, it sounds familiar, John, right? A little bit, yes. Yes. And, and, and to do that, you have to be in the application. You have to understand the application. It can't be a black box anymore. And I think that's part of the, the challenges with a traditional AppSec approach is we always treated the application like a black box. In the, in the model you just laid out, you, it can't be a black box anymore. You have to understand the application from the inside out in order to put these whitelist rules in place to enforce behavior. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I totally agree with that. I think fundamentally, for years as security people, the way that we treated developers was they were children running with scissors, right? They were going to do stupid things. Uh, they were incapable of doing anything normal and, and useful. Uh, and our job was to wrap their stuff in this security bubble wrap in a way that when they screw up inevitably, we're going to try to pad the application in a way so it won't do anything terrible. We'll put a, a WAF in front of it and an agent underneath it. We'll put some sort of database firewall behind it. And hopefully between all those layers of security, the stupid application will not malfunction in a way that's going to put us at too much of a risk. I think that model doesn't work and we know it. And we've known it for a long time, but when you go to serverless, you just have no choice but to recognize that because all you're left with is the application. So if you're not going to have a conversation with developers and DevOps people about how you work together on security, then you're just not doing security. So that's the place where you go, oh, okay, I got to change my mindset. I think that mindset needs to change everywhere. I don't think it's true you know, that, that in the VM world, you should be thinking about the application as a, you know, as a malicious black box you have to defend yourself from. But I think that here, we really recognize that there's no other choice and there's an opportunity to do it right. There's an opportunity to embrace developers. And at the same time, let's recognize the fact that in the cloud native world, developers have more and more power. Configuration as code also means that developers are doing things that classically they couldn't do. They could, you know, create machines. They can change the network in code. And we have to recognize that they have a lot more power we can't take that power away from them because that's going to slow them down and that's just not what the business wants, but we have to figure out a way to get the most security. And I think part of that is really embracing the application, embracing the developer process. And maybe just to throw one more thing, which I, you know, I'll talk about for another hour, uh, is embracing the, you know, the pipeline right, you know, for security. And that's something I've talked about a lot. And I think that the notion of you know, the pipeline as, as being friendly to security, DevSecOps has been you know, uh, maligned and, and, and over-discussed. But I, I really think here's the place when you go to the cloud where, hey, there, there isn't a lot of, you know, st you know gating between when a developer writes a line of code and when some customer is using it. So if you're not thinking about the pipeline as the place to validate security in a way that's automated, then you're probably going to be launching things into the you know, production environment that aren't secure and then hopefully catching them later and doing something about it. Yes, very true. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. That yeah, that's a fantastic look at it because you know just to repeat a little bit of what you're saying, this serverless focus is very code centric approach to AppSec rather than the black box of what is going on with this app and let's wrap it up with some types of tools. Um, with that said, when we're talking, a lot of what you were describing here too has been what is the app doing? What does it need to connect to? What's it? What you know? What does this function need to operate on in terms of data or interact with an, another service, for example? How much of this insight can come from the cloud service provider, but and how much of it be, perhaps becomes a more of a responsibility for the developers to in, to build in a lot of monitoring or logging themselves in order to enable a lot of this um, information collection so you can get to this analysis for least privilege type of access? It's a really good question. I'm not sure I have the right answer. We, we've taken an approach which tries to avoid having to 
uh, put additional security responsibilities on developers. To be honest, as someone who was a developer for many years, it's mostly because that hasn't ever really worked, um, not because mm -hmm. it's not a good idea. Um, so it's quite possible that as the world evolves, we do need to think about saying to developers, hey, you guys now to, need to be responsible for giving us more data, whether it's logging or marking up code or explaining to us in, in a way that a machine can read uh, where <coughs> malicious data could come from and where it's headed to and things like that. So I, I don't want to discount that. I, you know, Obviously, developers are super capable people at solving lots of other problems. There's no reason why they can't be part of the security equation. Having said that, we've so far tried to avoid as much of that as possible. We've tried to be in a situation where we're saying, look, you guys, you do what you need to do to create value. And honestly, the reason I believe in that is because I think security and development are kind of fundamentally different in mindset. You know, as a, as a developer, you're, you're trying to rapidly create something. You're trying to build something that works. Uh, it's the same reason why developers tend to do a lousy job at testing their own applications, um, despite the sort of DevOps world that we try to put them in. Uh, because when I'm thinking about the application, I'm thinking about how I want it to work, not how someone else might make it not work. And so putting the responsibility on a developer to say, hey, as you write that code, also figure out what's the ramification of giving that code this permission and think about whether that's something you need or not and could you live with less or not. That's tough. I'm not saying it can't be done and I don't want to discount that, but we've taken the approach that says, hey, the developers do what they need to do and we're going to build a system that can leverage the fact that there's so much data available already in their code and in the metadata and turn that into security uh, policy. But I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not a purist there. Like I do believe it's, there's room for solutions to come and say, hey, if a developer can, can take responsibility for certain things, we can get a lot more security and yeah, we should embrace that model. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the other thing too is that there, there's an underlying aspect that the developers perhaps can, there, there's initial speed that comes from this, especially if they're just saying, all we need to care about is the code. And we need to just make an adjustment here in this one particular function or this one particular lambda, for example. And we don't need to worry about the rest of the stack at all that under that is underneath it. And in fact, the security team doesn't need to worry about the rest of that stack underneath it as well. So it's really just here's a line of code. Code goes out. Make sure that there's some testing for the you know least privilege is being enforced. And actually, we now have a asset inventory that's literally just within our code repo of all of the lines of code for our app, rather than trying to come up with an asset inventory of the apps themselves or wrangling containers. So I just wanted to throw that out as some other things that um, I'm going to guess are are possibly some some emerging benefits that would come out of this type of approach too. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think uh, one of the things I'm seeing which surprised me at first uh, in our space, and I'm seeing it across a lot of different products and a lot of different companies, uh, I kind of expected uh, the usual reaction to security tools is, okay, I, as a developer, I, I, I get it. You need to do what you need to do. Uh, you know, dev, DevOps guys tend to say something like, I'm okay with carving out some space for security in the pipeline as long as security will be responsible for that space, and that's okay. And developers, I expected developers to say, all right, I understand that security is trying to make my life difficult and whatever, it's, a, it's just a tax I have to pay. What I've seen much more than I expected is developers wanting access to these tools, developers wanting to be able to look at that inventory and say, I actually want to be able to access the, you know, the, the Cloud Guard system as well. I want to be able to see what, what's, what's in my application and make sure that all that makes sense. Maybe I want to do, uh, you know, run some compliance on that myself. Uh, in our world, uh, when we went from doing sort of a cloud-based assessment of posture for serverless applications to shifting that into the pipeline as well, our intention was to allow security to have more control earlier in the process. But the thing that we didn't expect was developers were saying, hey, wait a minute. So instead of me getting some you know, error in production in something running from some security tool that blocked something, which I now have to go trace, now the pipeline can tell me before it goes out, hey, there's, there's a problem with your code. It's provisioned to do this thing where it's got a vulnerable library, whatever it is. That's fantastic. 
And then they immediately went to, wait, why do I have to wait for the pipeline? Can I run that locally? So we had to turn around and give them a version to run on their desktops so they could do the same evaluation locally. So I think developers do understand that there's a value in engaging with some of these tools and processes. Uh, and I don't want to say developers can never be part of the solution. I absolutely don't believe in that. Um, I also don't believe in some of the solutions I've seen out there which have said, hey, let's just give application level firewalls to developers. Let's let them write code in their in, you know, in each of their functions or containers that says, I need to do this, and I need to do that, and make, make them be really explicit and not allow them to do wildcards and things like that. I think at some point, if you're creating work for developers, you're adding a lot of time of, you know, to their day to spend on security, that's taking away from what they really should be doing. So it's that balance. But I do think that developers understand there's value in these tools, there's value in the visibility it gives them, there's value in being able to understand where these things are, and there's value in solving things earlier rather than later. Those are things that, as a developer, speak really well to me. And I've seen Every developer we've interacted with where I expected reticence from them to say, no, absolutely not, give it to me. But I also want access to it, and I want it earlier, and I want it on my machine, and I want it now. And why can't I get syntax you know, underlined in, in my ID? Yeah, and they want it in their tools. Yeah. They want it in the yeah. interfaces they're in every day. They don't want to have to log into a third-party security tool to go get that data. So yeah. as security practitioners, we need to be able to hand that data back to them into their tools because if they get it, like you said, They'll do something about it. They'll fix it. It's just we have to be a lot more forthcoming with the data, make it really easy for them to consume. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have to say you've made it really easy to have a fun and great conversation, Hillel. So uh, thank you for joining us. This was good. It was a pleasure. I hope you'll have me back. I, I think we're going to have to have you back for sure. And I want to thank Matt and uh, John for joining us as well. We're going to take a quick break now, and then we're going to return with news of the week. Synopsys is the leader in application security testing. With 84% of cyber attacks targeting the application layer, securing your software is more challenging than ever. Modern software development and deployment paradigms require security testing solutions that are automated, accurate, and integrate into your DevOps workflow. Synopsys enables DevSecOps with a portfolio of industry-leading tools, including Coverity, Black Duck, and Seeker, to help you build secure, high-quality software faster. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash synopsis to learn more. Nearly every business today relies on mobile applications, yet the vast majority do not adequately secure them. Once downloaded, mobile apps escape your control outside the secure network perimeter, thus making them easy targets for hackers. Enter GuardSquare. From the makers of ProGuard, GuardSquare integrates transparently and seamlessly into the development process, adding multiple layers of protection to Android and iOS applications, and effectively hardening apps against both on-device and off-device attacks. Request a demo today of GuardSquare at securityweekly.com forward slash Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman and John Kinsella. Attend RSA Conference 2020, February 24th to 28th, and join thousands of security professionals, forward-thinking innovators, and solution providers for five days of actionable learning, inspiring conversation, and breakthrough ideas. Register before January 24th and save $900 on a full conference pass. Save an extra $150 by going to securityweekly.com slash RSAC2020 and use our code to register. So Matt and John, we have uh, still this year is starting off with all kinds of uh, interesting news, I think, good news in the security industry. Uh, one of the things starting off with is Google has dusted off and updated their Project Zero policy, uh, meaning therefore for disclosure, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. And one of the things that was interesting about it was that they're taking a, as they say, they're trying to be simple, fair, and consistent. But what they've done is basically say, we're going to disclose everything at the on day 90. 
regardless of when it was fixed. And one of the interesting things about this was, is that, you know, the years leading to this, they've seen a couple hiccups with patches being pushed out quickly because there's a clock ticking for an automatic disclosure here. But that patch perhaps just fix one of the particular symptoms. It doesn't, or it doesn't, it doesn't fix the underlying problem. Or the patch comes up and it's not particularly, um, or, or there's another easy bypass for it. Or a patch is available, but it's not well adopted. So I think uh, there, there's an, uh, one, one of the subtexts here I think is positive in the sense that the policy is looking to put the end users a bit more front and center and focus on protecting the user rather than just trying to either, uh, depending on where you fall, um, you know, embarrassing companies and shaming companies into disclosing or just you know, working with them into getting this their, um, the, their applications patched and those patches out in a relatively prompt manner. So I want to play the other side of the coin for a second, because mm-hmm. when I read this, I was thinking, let me think about this for a second. So critical vulnerability comes out, it gets patched in 20 days, but I'm not going to disclose the full details for 90 days, till 90 days, because they're making it consistent. I get it. But how do people know the true severity of the vulnerability if they're not releasing the details with the patch that came out 70 days earlier, right? So my only concern here is that if you do fix it earlier, why wouldn't you give the full details to give the information to the people who are patching the systems on what the real impact to the potential system is? I just felt that was kind of a little wonky in, in this announcement. The other so, aspect there too, sorry, is um, you know you, you get that patch into the right people's hands and, and they're able to reverse engineer it to actually yeah. figure out what, what was um, – being protected against. So I don't know, it's, I, I see where, again, I see where Google's coming from. Um, eh. Thoughts, Mike? Yeah, I think you, you, you hit on one of the important aspects there, John, is that a patch is basically disclosure about what the flaw was. People have, especially when Microsoft first started doing Patch Tuesday, it was sort of like Vulnerability Wednesday because everyone was working <laughs> on reverse engineering and knew how yeah. to either exploit it, if you know, depending on how sophisticated they were. Yeah. I think in this case, what they've seen is that um, you know there's information in that patch. And they want to make sure that the patch has time to, let, let's call it settle, or that there's confidence that that patch not only is released, but can be adopted to, to a well degree, um, to, to a decent degree. They, they do say that as long if, if the company says, cool, 20 days later, we've patched it and let's disclose, they'll go ahead and disclose, and disclose early. It's just they're not going to necessarily use this uh, disclosure process as a massive stick or shotgun or metaphor of your choice saying, get the patch out as quickly as possible or else. They want to basically try to push more on the quality of those patches so that they don't then have to turn around and say, sure, you released a patch, but now we need a patch for that patch because here is another problem for it. Or for that matter, in in looking at the patch, it may have uncovered some other um, issues that are still vulnerable that haven't been announced yet or haven't been fully um, realized in terms of um, security analysis. So I, I think there's some good things here because they also, you know, ultimately haven't given up on saying we're going to hold everyone's feet to the fire and 90 days is 90 days regardless of who you are. Um, I did pull out, and, and kind of, it, it, there, there was a bit of serendipity here. Um, Katie Musuris started a uh, Twitter thread about the some of the events and history of vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty programs. 
And um, it's both um, informative as well as pretty entertaining because she has a pretty good gift game. Um, so more, I wanted to just call attention to that um, because her work has been um, foundational and fundamental to the whole vulnerability disclosure process. So for those of you who are interested in some of the history of you know how we've got to Project Zero in 2020, doing a little bit of revision on their policy for this, th there's quite a long history of this. Um, both there as well as Hack the Pentagon and um, the DOD um, just released, I want to say the end of December was saying, or Department of Homeland Security was saying, everyone in, you know, systems in government, you should have a VDP um, and possibly even a bug bounty program. So there's a lot of interesting things going there. So for you who are practitioners on the breaking side of things and, and AppSec finding problems, um, should be a good thread for you to read through. If you I'll can find it, it's hard. That. She's got a lot of great threads on her Twitter yeah. feed, so it, you got to find it, guys. I'm just saying. Yeah, I, I did link to it in the show notes, so that's the other teaser to see how many people actually come and read the show notes. So consider that the blue M&M for, for the show notes this week. Um, should be pink moving, m and with her hair. <laughs> uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and, and thumbs up for, for, for uh, alternate hair colors. So is someone uh, sporting blue? Um, well, glad to see that, Katie. Awesome. Um, I am now going to, uh, speaking of the blue M&Ms and my bad pun in the intro, um, there were four Ring employees who were fired for spying on customers. Um, I, I pulled this out because it ties into, uh, Matt, what you and I were talking about privacy by design and insider threat last week in, um, in one of our segments. And the idea here is a little, is more of that aspect of even when we had a great conversation with Hillel and how we can have least privileged access within our code, there are still, you know, people and employees that, you know, to go through the functions of what they do on their, for their daily, um, uh, jobs may need access to this data and how we uh, control access to that data is important as much as it is if if we have monitoring and auditing for that access as well. Yeah, there's a, an adjacency article on this that I'm going to cover on Business Security Weekly later today on privacy and the insider threat and this interesting balance because here we have uh, an insider threat without privacy by design built in, which allowed these employees to get access to some of this footage uh, and release that. And, and part of what I'm going to cover this uh, later today is, you know, some of the challenges around this, because, you know, to thwart insider threat also means that I have to limit aspects of, of what data is available uh, to, to view internally for different reasons, right? And look, we've seen types of disclosures like this before anyways facebook was mm -hmm. you know had had a mess last year on this front here you've got ring doing similar things and, and certain employees that are probably going to go to jail um you know this is a really hard problem to solve but if you are taking the principles even though no one's doing it really yet around privacy by design you would limit the ability for these types of insider attacks to happen and yeah. you know um I'm looking through all my. I keep notes in too many different places, so I've been listening to the the, the Practical AI podcast um, last few months, and they had someone on recently. I'll, I'll see if I can get it for show notes. Um, but really, what they're doing is there's a series of tools which are not new; they're just new to me that actually um, provide an interface for people to do both tuning of of your ML algorithms as well as 
um, labeling and, and categorization of these these items, right? Because that's really, really what's going on here, right? The reason a company like Ring has to provide access to this data, to these visuals, um, to their employees, is so that they can improve the, the ML models through your, your, how do you train and categorize and label these things? So, um, and, and really what's happening is instead of providing a, a solid tool which is going to control who's looking at what, when, how it's audited, what they did, all those type of things, they're probably providing a little more access than they should be. Uh, and, and long story short, what I'm trying to say is, you know, it's for the, for the startups out there and for the companies getting into the space, there's tools that exist that, for this that are, you know, free or commercial. Um, so if, if you're in that area um, and you don't want to be, you know, ring, <laughs> take a look around. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And there's a lot of data scientists doing this work who just need access to the data in, in bulk, but they don't need it to, you know, read through for their own, um, you know, for, for, for their own personal reasons. And what's mm -hmm. I think the other part of it that's good about this article is demonstrating there are consequences for um, violating policy and for, for you know, bypassing these or, or, or um, what's the better word? Um, taking too much advantage of the the permissions that they've been given. So building up this culture of consequences, I think, is equally important to um, building in what we're always going to talk about, automation and forcing this through code as much as possible. Yep, just to yep, um, uh, got the name for folks in, that, are, that are curious, uh, the product is looking for a streamlet, S-T-R-E-A-M-L-I-T. -E they've got an open source version, but um, there's lots of tools out there to do this type of thing. Cool. Yes, more reasons to come check out our show notes. Yes. Um, there now. Now we're going to turn to hopefully Matt. We're going to try not to get this become too technical for you and lose you here. Don't want to put you on the spot. But SHA one, um, SHA one is now officially um, practically broken. Let me say, all the way back in um, 2005, there were some theoretical attacks for it. But now some researchers have talked. Um, they they talked about this recently at Real World Crypto, saying they spent around forty-five thousand dollars in around a month of time, I think, to do a practical collision attack against SHA-1. Um, so this is pretty interesting. And already, I think you know, I, I was teasing you a little bit, Matt. I think you already can kind of guess at what some of the problems here are are going to be and why we sh should have been moving off of SHA-1 a long time ago. Yeah, I mean the federal government. Uh, ended support for SHA-1 back in 2010. So here we are in 2020, okay, 10 years after the government said, look, this is no longer <laughs> an, a, a, an acceptable hashing algorithm. So now we have, the, now we have the, the attack. So it was the right call, but here's the problem. This stuff's all over the place. It, it's it, embedded it, in all kinds of places. It hasn't been upgraded in, in 10 plus years. Absolutely. And the, the other thing, too, is we saw, um, for example, Chrome and, and Apple was doing something similar. All, and all the browsers came out and said, starting by Chrome, saying, look, SHA-1, we kind of want to get rid of these for certificates. And um, I forgot to actually go back and look specifically how long that was. But I want to say it was at least a two, if not a three year process for them to say, guess what? We're going to start deprecating this. Now we're deprecating it. Now we're actually calling the, these certificates insecure. And hey, certificate authorities, please stop issuing SHA-1 certificates at all. So this is a bit of a reminder that says, yeah, you should have already figured out a plan for this. But this is pretty complex in these ecosystems. Because one of the things that I would call out is that it's really easy to just say, 
pool. Our, uh, you know, our curl client, we're just going to adjust the um, command lines uh, flags that we're going to use for calling out and interacting with other services. That was easy. You know, that's 15 minutes worth of work to uh, put into your Git repo, move on. But all of the services you're calling into, now they have to rotate their certs, update their certs, and so on. And that becomes very complex problem because you have a lot of different people with a lot of different incentives, a lot of different timelines, as well as just plenty of servers out there that are legacy and orphaned. They, there's, there's no owner out there, and you just need to basically have that certificate die so the service dies and people stop using it, or it finally gets migrated to something good. So here's the question. We knew 10 years ago SHA-1 was theoretically broken, took 10 years to break it. What's the horizon for SHA-2, which was the obvious replacement for the SHA-1 algorithm? Where is it in its life cycle? And should I be looking at SHA-3 as my next step? Or, or, or what do I do, right? Because this is going to be this evolution. And as we see quantum computing continue to pick up over the next 5, 10, 15 plus years, all these algorithms are going to, have, are going to be susceptible to some level of, of attack. And so where do people go from here? Do, is SHA-2 enough? Do they go SHA-256 or 512? Or where do they go next to give them a, a horizon, a window where they don't have to deal with this for a while. Yeah, I think, I, I guess I have two ways I, I would start to think about that. One is that um, SHA-3 was, I think, partly purposefully chosen. The algorithm behind it is a very different um, uh, bunch of crypto primitives that are very different from, let's call it the Merkle Damgard or the, you know, of, of MD5 or the way that the um, SHA-1 and SHA-2 were designed. So the design is very different. Um, that, again, we'll just say it is different. We d that doesn't necessarily mean it's better. It's going to be any more resistant to something that's discovered five, ten years from now. Um, but the other thing I think that will help us a bit more is that hopefully with moving to cloud, moving to, let, let's call it DevSecOps, agility, or the speed of um, development, is that the need to migrate may be pressing, but the ability to migrate will actually be a lot easier. And I want to say that, or at least I want to cross my fingers and say that with moving to the cloud, having so much of your infrastructure, your code, your policy as, as, as code, that having key management within the cloud, having something like Let's Encrypt and the ACME protocol to help a lot with these types of key rotation and key man certificate management, I'm just going to cross my fingers and say, yeah, we're going to have these problems, but we'll be able to move on and and rotate them or or respond more quickly. And more quickly in this case may be actually one year rather than one decade. Um, so take that with a grain of salt. The, the issue As to I me isn't do. so much the algorithm itself. It's going to be broken, right? Um, the issue to me is with storage data, whether I mean that's data you're purposely storing or data that someone, you know, I was I was going to say when I was thinking about this, um, it, it could be only worry about stored data, not data on the wire, but if someone's, you know, recording what you've got on the wire, same thing. So stored data, uh, probably for this topic more in a cloud, if someone happens to get a copy of that, they hang on to it for 10, 15 years, um, they're, they're going to be able to see what you thought was private. So I think that's one of the more, at least to me, one of the more fascinating and really interesting and, and OPSEC important aspects of this is not just so much picking good algorithm or doing your key rotation or those type of things, but um, cleaning up of that old data, making sure it doesn't fall into the wrong people's hands. 
or do we move that's to a- full-blown tokenization so it doesn't matter you just you kind of randomize everything yeah look at so look at the discussion around tls 1.3 because a lot of that and there its use of or its requirement of forward secrecy is mm-hmm. one of those ways to try to tamp you know get in front of hey here is someone who's just going to record all data and hold on to it for 10 years so that they can decrypt it later or compromise the cert and then go back and decrypt the data um tls 1.3 has a lot of design that makes that a lot more difficult or you can it, even if you compromise the the certificate, the private key, you're not going to be able to cert- compromise the um, encrypted traffic as easily. Uh, and the tokenization, I think that that's a great callback to uh, privacy by design because it's one thing to compromise an S3 bucket. It's another thing just to compromise an S3 bucket with a bunch of 64-bit um, random identifiers or a bunch of GUIDs. Um, that just can't be reused. So have I been pwned, for example, of has my PII been pwned, hopefully will become a lot less of an issue as more companies adopt that type of tokenization and pass around those identifiers rather than the raw data itself. Oh, we can only hope. Yeah, we can only hope. Um, let's see, what, what other things can we hope? We, we can hope that people have read their open source licenses. Um, because there are some security implications of that. Well, I mean, there's, there, we could probably have a whole segment on open source itself. Um, but Matt, th- this caught your eye. I was kind of curious what you wanted to um, highlight from this. Yeah, well, on LinkedIn, I got a, a ping from someone and said, hey, I'd love for you to do an open source, open source software governance discussion, right? And how to manage it at scale. And this article happened to come across the wire this week. And I thought this was interesting because... There's two main points in this article that I wanted to bring out. You know, we see a lot more use of open source software, but there's some case law out there that says, look, if you're using open source, you're still responsible for the integrity of your application that uses the source code. You can't just blame the open source libraries and and not have liability. And I think that's a a misnomer that I think some people might have. And so I wanted people to realize, even though they're using open source and it's come from another place, There is case law out there that says, look, you're still responsible for the overall application that's using this open source. So people understand the potential risk aspects of leveraging open source. The other part is really to the licensing piece and really understanding the various licenses around open source software. Are you exposing some of your intellectual property because you're using an open source library that requires you to disclose some of your stuff back, right? Again, it's a risk profile that organizations have to understand on the types of licenses they're going to allow and not allow in their projects moving forward to protect them legally and maybe protect some of their intellectual property. So I thought it was just a really good article for people to look at that are looking at different open source uh, projects to say, what's the impact to us by looking at these different uh, open source libraries? Yeah, it reminded me of um, a few years ago, I think two or three years ago, uh, React.js from Facebook. Now, React, I will always talk about favorably as one of the best things that, one of the best engineering solutions that, oh, by the way, pretty much got rid of cross-site scripting for us. Um, So it's always going to be favorable for me. But it did go through a um, license discussion because Facebook put it out with essentially what was called like a BSD plus patents. Um, type of license, and the Apache Software Foundation um, did not react, haha, very well to that. And so there are organizations out there that are looking to review how this licensing um, 
and the impacts on intellectual property and what the implications are. Of course, we're not talking about security here. We're talking about, or we're perhaps talking about security of intellectual property. We're talking about also just risks if we put our you know bigger CISO hat on perhaps and what are risks to using this and making sure that we're going in with a, a full knowledge of it. And I think to your other point about the, um, uh, the, the first part you're talking about that, you know, using open source doesn't absolve you of taking care of security. It, that really just speaks to what AW, the, the drum that AWS has been beating about shared responsibility. So here again is just another case of shared responsibility. You're using this open source, but you need to understand what dependencies is pulling in, as well as taking care to see how it is manipulating data, encrypting data, choosing right um, good encryption algorithms for that matter, and so on. Yeah, we had this argument back in the early days of Graham Leach, Bliley, and third-party vendor management because one of the ways the banks were offsetting risk was that they were outsourcing a lot of functions. And the regulators came in and said, look, you can outsource the function, but you can't outsource the risk. Same thing with open source. You might outsource a piece of code, but the risk profile is still your responsibility in the application. And I think that's something that people just always don't think about. And you need to think about it because... Equifax is a perfect example of a piece of open source code that was vulnerable that led to a major data breach. So these these issues are important. So I there's there's a phrase out there in the legal world. It's it's skipping my mind right now, but um, more or less best practices. Uh, the, the the package which Equifax got popped over was. Um, obnoxiously out of date and had known vulnerabilities in it. So I think I, I don't want to scare people. Is really what I'm saying here with my with my open source hat on, but. I'm, I'm leaving off my Apache hat because I forget the details about that, um, the React license. Um, but yes, you have to go to you have to go to to, to um, you know industry best practices, industry standards. You know you have to keep looking. Is there a known vulnerability in it? But I don't want people to start thinking that oh my god, we have to go and scan all this code ourselves and figure out a vulnerability no one else knows about. I don't think that would hold up in a court of law. No, no, no. Um, it's it's more of a due yeah. diligence discussion, John, yeah, right? Yeah, Have yeah. you yeah. done your adequate due diligence to realize that the libraries you're using uh, don't have critical vulnerabilities that could compromise another piece of your code? It's it's kind of that base due diligence level that we're talking about. Yeah, and I, that I totally agree with. Um, yeah. And then around the IP thing, you know, that's it really only comes back to bite you if you're doing distribution. Um, if for almost all these licenses, if you're using it internally, it's okay. Uh, the category X thing around that that Facebook fell into is, uh, I, I mean, that the blog post is an interesting read. They've they've got their reasons behind what they did. Uh, like I said, I'm not fully up to date on on you know it's I forgot that was three years ago when when Mike posted. I'm like, oh, again? No, it's it's an older blog post. <laughs> um, so it's it's you know it's, they they claim they have their reasons you know we all have sort of iffy thoughts about Facebook but they do have a lot of good engineers and got a lot of good thoughts so um, it's an interesting thought experiment at least um, about what to do with that. Yeah, and I think even for those of you who uh, use the Mac, you've seen the the default shell switch from uh, Bash to is it, was it Z shell now? Yeah. And um, again, it's very it's very interesting to see what how different organizations respond to licensing and how they how they choose them. Um, so just is, you, yeah, go ahead. On that one, do you know that was for licensing? Because what I went googling around recently, and I didn't find a, a good solid answer on why they did that. Yes, my so my uninformed observation was, and what I had read was that it was around um, bash licensing, 
Um, but obviously, I think at this point, we're possibly starting to to dive into too much just uninformed yeah. conjecture. So maybe <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put an asterisk here, do our research, and we'll come back with an actual segment that's going to help everyone out. And um, we can talk with a bit more authority on it. Other than hopefully, if you're writing your Bash shells to manage your cloud in, in, infrastructure, please at least move on to Python or something that's more readable. That's all I'm going to ask. But um, so so moving on to uh, other topics, uh, I, I threw this in here. Um, this might be more for your your business side, um, Matt. Uh, Synopsys buys Tinfoil, so we see another company, or maybe we can call this a consolidation of essentially a bunch of different points along the CI/CD pipeline. So you know, software yeah. composition analysis, source code analysis, and now with Tinfoil, some dynamic application security testing. Yeah, I mean, what you have is Synopsys here, who's also a sponsor, by the way, um, continuing to build out their application portfolio. You know, like I said, I do a lot of investor calls uh, around the market. And people, you know, I'm a big app guy, right? App user data. And look, Synopsys has built a fantastic portfolio of application security companies. They've made a number of key acquisitions for three, four years now, building out a really strong application security portfolio. Tinfoil brings another piece into the mix. Now, I know Tinfoil from the days uh, Paul and I were at Tenable, and we were asked to look at the different web app scanners that were out there. Our top list was NetSparker, Detectify, and Tinfoil. Those were our three. And if we were going to acquire, those would have been one of the three that we acquired. We ended up buying the Arachne source code to build the, their web app scanner, Tenable's. Um, but they were on the top three lists. We, we really like those products. So it's a very solid product. And what you're seeing now is somebody who's got a bigger application portfolio that sees how this fits into their overall strategy, bringing that asset into the overall mix. You know, you, Synopsys, like $300 million application security business under a $3 billion uh, semiconductor design business. Uh, big portfolio is sitting here, and, and they're just continuing to build it out, which I think is great. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it will just be me for watching to see how much more scanning we can um, see in the in the future, as well as the, the thing that stood out to me, too, was just trying to – I was wanting to take a, a – um, Sorry, I'm losing all my words today. Take a look at their API security scanning because the API um, scanning we talked a little bit about in 2019. I think it's a topic to come back to because that's what's going to be, I think, more interesting than just call it like generic black box web scanning. Um, yeah, and, and what was interesting about Tinfoil when we evaluated them at the time, the way they were handling APIs was unique before API security became a really big issue. Uh, and I think they kind of shifted some of their dynamic scanning more towards the APIs. And so that's probably the, the benefit that Synopsys saw in the portfolio was more of a focus around the API side of what they were doing at Tinfoil. Yeah, which is great for the, the, the world is now much more API. So definitely forward looking and a smart choice. And I did want to end with one final um uh, story here, article here, um, th that's about just a, a rotating your certs within some Amazon services. But honestly, it was less about those specific services and Amazon in particular, but it was a chance to talk about certificate rotation. So here is um, one reminder about rotating some certs. Um, the, the article explains why. It gives, a, it gives a nice timeline, you know, a warning up through March 
Um, so you have at least three months to prepare before you know, everything stops working for you. Um, but also at the end of 2019, I think it was Cisco um, sent out an announcement. They, they had some um, like self-signed certs that were going to expire on December 31st. Uh, 2019, and that we're going to possibly impact a couple different services. But what I wanted to point there is that when you're choosing, you know, rotating certificates is necessary. Hopefully you have it automated, but you also actually should or could have control over when certificates can expire. And if you were, for example, to choose an expiration date on a, you know, December 31st when everyone's out celebrating the New Year's, or you're, it's going to expire randomly on a Saturday evening at midnight, that's not so helpful for your ops team, for your DevOps team. Why not just start to pick some things that are, here's an expiration date that actually is on a Tuesday uh, during business hours when people are working. So when everything actually stop, you know, starts exploding and start, stops working and you can't quite figure out why until somebody points to the expired certificate, you actually have people in the office who can react quickly um, and can plan accordingly. And as well as just putting it on something like a Tuesday or something during the week, is just a bit more friendly to the humans that actually have to deal with um, managing those certs. It's a great idea. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Is here, here's, your, here's your idea for um, something helpful from, from ASW. And it's, it's, it, it sounds simple, right? But it's like when I was doing the consulting thing, I used to rotate my GPG keys every January, first week of January. And um, man, after two or three years of, of you know, lots of teeth gnashing from my coworkers and customers, uh, I, I stopped doing that. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I didn't even think of that aspect, too. So um, ho hopefully you've now rotated your GPG keys so they're not using uh, SHA-1 in their fingerprints as well, now that we've learned that in this episode as well. I've moved over to a mental telepathy. It works way better. <laughs> so I'm getting, I'm receiving, yes, thank you, John. I, I, John has just reminded me that we're also near the end of the segment today. So I want to thank you, Matt. Thank you, John, for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. We'll see you next week on Application Security Weekly.